0: Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables which includes some of the top players from around the world Our objective is very simple We want to be able to educate entertain and energise the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 18 of Control the Coronables. Today we have British tennis coach Calvin Betton. Calvin has worked at all ages and levels throughout his 20 years of coaching. He has strong philosophies that he shares with us today. Some great discussion to be had. Enjoy the show. Calvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Nice to be here.
0: As as we do, Calv, just a little introduction. Um, so Calvin for many years has been working, um, working on the tour, traveling, travelling with lots of different players. You know, British coach spends spends a great deal of time uh, do, doing the, the hard yards really, you know, and, and and I think it's it's nice for us to to get that side of it than than just the glamour side glamour side of tennis. Some of you might know him for his Twitter um he's a he's a social media he's a social media guru he, he he's he's good at getting some opinions out there um and and that's it so so Calvin Betton great to have you How, how's things during this this mental time huh?
1: Yeah it's, it's strange isn't it it's different um it's a different environment um I think the last last couple of weeks have been tougher I mean for me personally i am it was strange yesterday, I only thought i put a tweet out about it, that it's probably the, the, the longest that I've not seen a tennis court in over a quarter of a century. Yeah. And I've not thought about it that way until the other day. You know, it's um, the, the, definitely the longest that I've not watched any live sport because pretty much my entire life is watching live sport, tennis, football, cricket, golf. Yeah. So, you know, you've taken both of those elements out and there's not a whole lot left. And yeah. I think it's now getting a bit frustrating because I'm so competitive myself that... There's just no competition either for myself or any, anyone who I support in doing that. So, yes, yeah. Yeah, weird times.
0: It is. It is and it's, it's right. It's, we probably wouldn't mind six or seven weeks in the house if we had all of our football and our different sports. Oh, well, exactly. And, and that's the that's the double whammy on it as well, isn't it? You know, it's like, and, and, and I, the other thing on it, I, I don't know how, how you're feeling over there in the UK, but we're, we're almost seven weeks now and it feels actually incredibly normal now. It's, it's, it's almost like we've been institutionalized into this way, this way of living. I'm actually a little bit worried about the other side now. I don't know if you guys have got to that point yet.
1: Yeah, it's a strange one as well. I think how the time sort of scale has been has been very weird. I mean, we're a bit further on now, but I know a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was talking with a couple of the lads who I was in Tunisia with at the start of the year, and I said, it, you know, it's mad that sort of, it's only five weeks ago that we were in Tunisia. And, you know, it felt like six months because so much had happened. Yeah, but yeah. So much happened over the space of sort of about 10 days, I think, didn't it? You, you know, it just, it went from sort of a, you know, perfectly normal and talk that there's this, there's this sort of virus somewhere in China to where entirely shut down. And, and I think since then sort of time stood still, but we've only sort of been in it, I guess, I think it's five or six weeks over here now, but it feels like six months.
0: Yeah, it does, and it's all and it's very bizarre as well the way that it was. I know that I, I, I believe that you were you were in Greece, weren't you, when it when it was announced?
1: Yeah, it was um, it was a strange one because I was with a player who I'd been doing a bit of travelling with, and I'd flown. He was there already, but I had something on at the start of the week, so I had to fly out on um, my initial flight, which we'd booked, was to go from Manchester to Italy, Italy to Greece. Um so then that was to fly out on a Wednesday afternoon so on the Tuesday I was on a course with Louis Kaye, and then I got a message saying all flights to Italy have been cancelled so then I had to sort of the guys at the LTA Louis and and Wheeler were were perfectly great with me and they sort of said go and sort your flight out so then I had to sort of run out I managed to get a different flight from London to Athens, Athens to Crete I got there at 10 to midnight on Wednesday night. Um, The lad I was with played his his second round match, 9.30 a.m. on Thursday. Um, He won that, so that was about 11 a.m. And then there was sort of rumors that maybe, I think that was around about maybe when Indian Wells got canceled. They announced it then. but then we went and spoke to the ref straight away and the ref in Greece was saying, we're, we're cracking on. We, we've got five weeks of tournaments here. We're going to do them all. Um, said no one on Crete's got the virus. There's no reason to cancel. Um, so that was the position. They went on then and played doubles. After the doubles match, there was rumours that the ref was in a discussion with the ITF. Um, about an hour later than that, about five o'clock, On Thursday afternoon, the ref came out into the players' lounge and said, um, everything's cancelled. We spoke with the ITF, the ATP. They've called all tennis off. You'll get your points for how far you've got this week. Um, But we're done here. Um, So then everyone tried to get a flight. We managed to fly out of there at 5 a.m. on Friday morning. Um, And, uh, yeah, I was in Greece for uh, 28 hours total.
0: Yeah, it's completely mad. Yeah, we had we had some of our guys playing in Portugal, the say obviously the same day. And they were actually informed mid-match. Oh so, wow. So it all went it all went quite um it was interesting because I was watching it on live stream and one of my players, I was like, What's happened here? He's like Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they 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 got told but the match finished.
1: Right. That okay.
0: So it was like I think it was it was like he was a set up and five all in the second, right? And it was announced. It was literally announced, you know. But finish your match, and he lost that set seven five. And I was like, oh, well, that wasn't great. Two games, yeah. And he lost the third six one, right. and, I was, and I was and I we had one of our coaches also watching. I was texting, him what's going on? And like, yeah. In the third, I said, what's happening? He, he doesn't. Yeah. And and actually, in fairness to him, he actually didn't come off straight away. And so it was because of that. But I think probably in hindsight, that that 5-10% change happened. 100%, Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's crazy. And what, is it, what, what do you think it means? What does it mean to tennis? What, what's, what's I think it's a difficult
1: one, I think, with the tennis just because, that, because of the rankings and how the rankings work and the amount of travel that we'd have to do. It, it's one of those where I don't think you can realistically start either, you know, because there's talk of maybe they'll just start the main tour, maybe they'll just do the slams. Or, you know, maybe because there's no fans there, maybe we could crack on with futures sooner. But yeah. I don't see how you'd get around the rankings on that because it's going to bring a disparity into it. So if you just did the main tour or the slams, you're going to get, say, the top 100 players. The gap between, for example, to simplify it down, the gap between, like, say, 100 and 101 could yeah. get so big because they're going to be getting points when no one else below yeah. them is getting points. So then it could, it could just take so much time or or make it impossible to then break into that for those guys flip side of that is if you just did the futures you're going to get them racking up points and the guys who are not playing aren't going to get any so i don't see maybe i'm not thinking about it right but i don't see how you can start any of it before you can start it all
0: no i mean i think that's again a couple of guys we've spoken to the last few weeks on the podcast has had the same it's one ranking system yeah So, so it's like and the same if let's say that Spain was still infected, the infected area that you couldn't travel to or from
2: yeah
0: it's unfair that countries that are able to travel can travel you know so it, it kind of all yeah. you know at all we need the, the world needs to be open for the ITF ATPW to us to run uh, you know yeah i think
1: it's imp- i think it's going to be important now that the the the, the national federations have a decent level of domestic tennis for when, when it's safe for people to play tennis again, for people to play competitive tennis. I think that they need they need to do that. And I think what's important as well is for singles and doubles, because especially in Britain, we've got a lot of doubles players who, even if, say, the British Tours get back up and running, yeah. those doubles players are going to need something to play and they're going to need some competitive tennis matches. So yeah. I think it's important to to jump on things like that. I guess places like France, Spain, Germany, they're already set up for that Um yeah. I think it's important that the other countries are. Because I think, you know, there's other fold-on effect as well, I guess, that when, when, we do, when they do reopen the tour, we don't know, like, what, what's air travel going to cost? You know, it's like, are you going to be getting a 30-quid flight to Greece anymore yeah. when you've got six months of backlog, seven, eight months of backlog of people needing to travel?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more knock-on effects than any of us realise. Yeah. You know, and I think hopefully there can be some positives that come out of it, but I think there is some real, there's some real stuff that everyone's going to have to work through as well. And, and in terms of, you know, obviously we've talked tennis a lot over the years. I, you're an intelligent guy. You've got, you've got lots, of, lots of strong opinions, which I, I like. Have you had any time to reflect on maybe some things you would change about the game? You know, and in, in it's kind of, it's a perfect chance, I guess, to make, to make some changes to, to, to move the sport forward in some ways.
1: I mean, I've always said that I'd like to see a sort of, I don't have a definite answer to to how this would work. I'd like to see that a sort of golf based ranking system where you can, you can qualify for the main tour and have a, a sort of better distribution of, of, of money and points from, I think they missed the beat last year when they they came up with the two separate tours and two separate rankings, but were really, they were playing the same tournaments. I think maybe regional tours would be a European tour and American tour and an an Asian tour, all feeding into a a worldwide tour would be something that I'd definitely like to see more because I think at the minute we just have too much, there there's definitely too much crossover that you can turn up for futures ranked sort of unranked and you can play somebody 300 280 in those and i, I think there were that's a bit skewed i think i'm not sure you you get that in any other sport um but also they have to you know i think that i've been saying this for years we all have that they need to sort the finances out yeah they do it's not um there's no other major sport where you don't earn a penny if you're outside the 150 best players in the world.
0: So why does so? This is this brings me on to this question: Why do so many players still do it, and why do we do it as coaches? Well, it's the dream, isn't it?
1: You know, you you see what what you think can be, and we've had enough sort of we have enough sort of teasers that that think that it's possible. So you know, you, it, there's a love a lot of players have a love of the game, but you always think, yeah, we we've got a chance here, and if you get into that. Sort of, you know, top two hundred, then it's a pretty good life, Dan, isn't it? You know, for for the players and yeah. the coaches. If you know, some co- maybe not maybe not for some coaches, if they have got families at home. But there's worse ways to earn a living than be a tennis player and a tennis coach. I know that for
2: sure.
0: Yeah, not completely. But if I use one of one of my loves as an example, Newcastle United, um, yeah. owned, owned by. Mike Ashley for thirteen years, and we've whinged and we've moaned and we've done everything, but ultimately everyone's still packed the stadium out every week, you know. And it's and it's almost that analogy back into the tennis world. There's a lot of talk about play for you, and we all know, you know, inflation. It hasn't gone up. We I played yeah. a, a, a satellite tournament fifteen years, twenty years ago, twenty years ago, um, twenty years ago even more yeah the money was pretty much the same then yeah yet yet if there's possibly more tennis players trying to do it now than ever before so, so yeah. I guess there's looking at it there's not exactly a, a strong voice coming from players and coaches on it in terms of action <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know maybe I don't know not that I'm trying to start a, a world strike here but but actually people pulling you know pulling away in and trying to start some real strong unions with it and say, well, hold on, because the, the, the top two doesn't work without that as well. You know, yeah. they, it, need, yeah. it, it needs to join together more. And, and I guess actions speak louder than words, maybe.
1: I think it's the the food chain that we're in there, isn't it? I think in in many things that it's easy to forget about where the food chain lies, and that, that's the thing with tennis. I think that maybe that's what's been forgotten a lot in recent years: how important those low, lower tours are um, yeah. to it. But I think in terms of like, why do we stick to it? I've always said the same. There's there's emotionally, there's nothing that's all encompassing as competitive sport. There, yeah. there just isn't for people for people who are into sport and we know that through football tennis and cricket there, there's no other activity that emotionally is as all-encompassing as competitive
0: sport. Yeah. and what about you personally what what do you what's your what bits do you love about the tra- travel you know obviously you, you you've, you've traveled a lot over the last few years and what bits do you not love as much um
1: I, I I'm so competitive personally that I, I I love the competing. There was there was a line I read it last week. Somebody saying that that any coach who says they enjoy match days is lying. But I, I don't I did entirely disagree with that. I get where the person's coming from. Yeah. It was it was a coach and I get where they're coming from. That you know you get nervous, but I, I love that. I love match day. Yeah, absolutely love it. Um, I love preparing for matches. Yeah. seeing players improve, getting development and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, what do I not like about it? I, I, there's not much I don't like about it. It's difficult when players lose and they lose either, it's difficult when they either lose an extremely close match that they have chances to win
2: yeah.
1: um, or if they've got, or if they've lost a match badly, that's tough. And also, you know, it's, as coaches, we're not geniuses. We're not, we're not scientists here. We don't always have the answers. And I think sometimes, you know, when a, when a player comes off from a match, you know, we might have some observations. But if we don't have any observations, there's some awkward moments there, isn't there?
0: Yeah, it's hard. It can be, and like you say, you touched on it there. There's nothing worse than than losing. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you know we can we pre and we preach and it's the right way and, and absolutely, you know, we focus on the process. You know, we're trying to, you know, there's different ways of winning the match, you know, all of these things. Yeah. But ultimately, if you're working with a player who's losing a lot, it's the the mood's different, you know. Oh, yeah. The the dinner and there's no getting getting away from it, I guess. I guess in sports like football and in sports that are a bit more domestic you know, that loss happens but you're going back to your family or you're going back to you with your mates or, or whatever it might be into a different environment. When you're away on a three week trip and and the losing happens it it sits in the air doesn't it 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 sits in there in the air in everything that you do
1: oh absolutely yeah and i think you know it's tough to especially with younger players who i think don't have the life experience of of knowing being able to let the the water go off the back easy
2: yeah
1: it it can hang on them and that that's when it's tough because even if we're saying the right things that doesn't mean that they're going to accept it and we might not be saying the right things as well so
0: yeah And, and we also know the way that People like to point a finger, you know. I think in, in, in terms of when they're dealing with an emotion, when they're dealing, rather than taking responsibility for that emotion, it's it's a much it's a much easier way to actually start numbing their pain by pointing the finger somewhere else. And, oh, absolutely, and yeah. That comes um, our way as well as coaches. Yeah, but I
1: think that's because you know they they don't any of us don't want to admit that you know one we don't want to admit that maybe we just the other guy was just better yeah yeah and that happens a lot, and I think that's the toughest post match analysis to have if yeah. you, you know if you just think yeah that, that was just a bad matchup or you know the other guy was just good yeah. you know it's like because that's not that doesn't often fill the void that needs saying after a match, so you've got two options you can either say it or you can you can waffle for
0: it. in terms of just to, to switch over to another another topic calv, I know that you're you're very passionate about development, development of players, skill acquisition. Um start us off. You know, give us give us your some of your thoughts on that, which I think is a very interesting topic for people that listen listening well, So something I've been looking
1: into a lot recently is um if I could you know sort of break that down into smaller subjects is just find it interesting how people practice at tournaments and in preparation for tournaments and yep. And, and they're sort of asking the question why we're practising, this, especially, you know, with some, sometimes with coaches involved, but sometimes players on their own. Is that, that they sort of, I see a lot of this sort of bog standard practice that it's almost like, I don't, I don't want to sound harsh in saying it, but it's almost box ticking. Um,
0: uh, I was on a German league team back in the day, which... With actually some of the Yorkshire boys, you know, the you know Dave, Dave Sherwood was in it. Johnny Murray, yeah, they had a fantastic team. And there was two young, there was two young Germans, Tobias Kampka and Julian Reister. Yeah, yeah. So they were like 16 when we started, and you know, as we made our way up into the Bundesliga, and you know, a pretty tight knit team. They probably spent five years bouncing between. 250, 280, and 450. Yeah. Um, good players, really good players. Then the, the team actually broke down for a reason that's not, not for this podcast, but it, they I was watching, obviously, with interest to those guys. And the next year, they both qualified at French Open. One made third round, one made second round. Then they both qualified at Wimbledon. One made third round, one made second round. And they both kind of went whoosh right up into the top hundred, which you know, often you don't see when people stagnate at that level for long. So, yeah. so I reached out to them and it was at the time when I was setting up the academy and I just said, look boys, you need to tell me what what's happened. Okay. You know. And they said exactly that. They said we we started to we started to improve at tournaments and not just not just play at tournaments, you know, and yeah. just maintain. And it was a, it was a, it was a mindset shift that stuck with me. And that's something that I hopefully take into my coaching and, and take to the academy that every day it's how, how are we getting better? And, yeah. and and nothing makes my blood boil more than what you're talking about that. And it's often, it's half an hour court. But, yeah. But by the time they put their shoes on and do that and do this, it's, it's, and then, you know, have a drink for two or three minutes. It's, it's 24 minutes at best. Yeah. And, and then it's like, I practice twice today. <laughs>
1: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And, and I think that, you, you, you know, it, it's it's interesting how, how they think about that. And, yeah, you know, it's not difficult. Sometimes you've only got half a court, and like you say, you've only got half an hour, but just trying to find ways of – I think that you should – the two questions that I've got down to in, in asking it, is that any practice? I think that there's two questions to ask. Is does it transfer to the match court? Yeah. What you're working on, does it transfer? And also, how many decisions did you make? Yeah. Because – when that's what basically decent level tennis comes down to is decision making it's not competency you know yeah, it's yeah. not one once you can do that you know it's not the ability to hit cross court and get the ball in that's the problem yeah so just practicing that we're already practicing practicing something that we can already do to a very competent level yeah but how many decisions did you make in a practice session there's not many in a lot of these yeah, you know, yeah. this is um and does it transfer to the match court no because you've just spent 15 minutes hitting only forehands and only cross court yeah so that's not going to transfer to the match court but if you've only got half a court there are, you know it's difficult but there are ways of getting around it let's play the let, let's play point tail let's yeah. at least get a bit of pressure training it yep. let's say that you've got to hit you you've got to hit a slice one in every three shots to to just just add something else into it add a big bit of dexterity into it or something
0: yeah can you give us any examples because i completely agree and and i completely agree that ultimately our competition level is our level you know so yet yet we're practicing 90 95% of our time so how how do we make those practices more competitive <laughs>
1: No, you're never going to get anything as representative as playing a practice set and the player self-reflecting after each point or reflecting to the coach if he's manages to get on there on court. That's the ultimate, obviously, that and that's the most representative of the game. But we might not always have the opportunity to get practice sets played because of the constraints of, of being at a tournament or court space at home or whatever. So we have to look at other means of, of improving decision-making. And what's interesting is players and coaches always talk about how their decision making could be improved. Coaches talking about how their players their decision making isn't that good. But when you ask them, well, how much time do you spend on decision making training, it's in proportion to their other elements of training. It's never that much. It's always quite low. And do we know what decision-making training is? Now, there there is there is plenty of theory behind it, and there is an actual form of decision-making training, but we don't have time to go into that right now. So we have to look at other means. But to simplify it, what I would say is that any training, any game or drill that is cognitively engaging the player where they're having to think about what they're doing all the time rather than going through the motions and 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 what looking at their options. What options do they have? What what did I choose the right one? Would I do the same again? You're always gonna improve decision making on any drill or practice like that or a game if it's if and and, and again always make it competitive. And at the same time the flip side of that coin is that any sort of practice that is blocked repetition so you're repeating the same thing over and over again the same shot over and over again research has shown that the human brain whenever we're doing blocked repetition cognitively engages less and less with every subsequent repetition of doing that so if you're just doing cross-court rallying and you, it's first to 100 balls or something, you're going to be quite focused on balls one, two, three, four, and then it's going to start going down. And then by the end of it, when you're into ball 50, you're not even thinking about you. You're cognitively just switched off at that stage and you're going through the motions. So from a decision-making point of view, we don't want that just that level of, 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 sort of repet- repetition after repetition after repetition. We want to always aim for that idea of repetition without repetition. And then just the last point on that, I think with anything, if, if you can get into the game or the drill or whatever you're doing where the player is choosing to do something rather than being told that they have to do something, rather than being forced to do something, they're choosing when to implement a certain skill or something, then you're cognitively engaging, then you're making a decision. And that's what we. I think we should always be aiming for rather than telling players you have to do this on every ball. That That's when we're losing decision-making.
0: And what about how could other sports help that? Because that's that's another battle I think we have as, as as tennis coaches, especially in the younger ages, is getting getting parents and getting coaches as well to understand the importance of learning some of those skills actually through other sports. Right? Yeah,
1: there is some, but I think other you know there's some sports that are very good at this and some that are not. Football's an interesting one because football's one that sort of three, four years ago were, was not good at this, but they've had sort of quite a big impact. And especially in Britain and you see in, in England, you've seen a lot of more, more skillful players coming through now who we would normally, you know, we've always sort of thought British players were a bit more rugged, worked hard, but didn't have much in the, the sort of touch and feel departments. But, you know, and an example from that, if I got to another sport is, is and you'll have done this because you play football to a decent level, the old two touch Two-touch yeah. football. I remember it explained to me that it's just, again, it's completely, um, it doesn't transfer to the football pitch, to the match at all, because there's no decisions being made. You What, what, what if you need a third touch to make a really good move? Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. But also it affects the defender on that. It doesn't, affect the, 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 it doesn't affect just you with the ball. It affects the defender who's defending you because they know you have to pass it. Yeah, at yeah. that stage. They're, so they're not thinking about, as they would be in a match, right, where's he going to go? What what do I cover here? They, they know what they've got to cover, so it doesn't affect either party. So what you've seen in, in, in football in England is, is a real sort of, they've done away with two-touch and that kind of thing. Right. And they've done away, football's done away with a lot of their sort of old-school training methods that um, in order to go down this route. And, you know, hopefully tennis will as well.
0: And there's no, I guess there's no there's no drill in the world that helps with decision-making as much as just playing open points.
1: Um, there's not, no, but there's tools that you can speed that up with. Yeah. If you will, you know, there's sort of decision-making questions that, um, that you can go down the route of how, how the coach approaches it. Does the player? I mean, one thing I think I, I just, it, it kills me with players, some players. I don't, I, I often say it kills me players. I don't mean all players, but um, it, is that they don't self-review. And the yep. self-review is not tough. You know, it's like, have a, have a quick system, right? What did I do there? What options did I have? Did I commit to it? What will I do differently next time?
2: Yep.
1: And I think if, every, if players sort of go through a, a quick self-review after every point, they'd yep. notice that their decision-making improved anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a nice little example, actually. We work closely with a golf academy out here in Spain. And they call it... Um, they call it the box box theory. So they have um, they have think box. So they, they they That's the the kind of obviously decision making happens much much faster in tennis than in golf. You know, yeah. but, you have, but you have your period where, where you if you've got a caddy, you, you're analysing the situation. You know, the wind, the right club, you know, whatever it might be. You're taking all of the variables in. Yeah. Then you then have have your your moment when you stand up, which is five seconds to hit the shot. You're right. That's kind of like, that's your play box. You know, that's it. You know, all you're thinking about there is commitment and feel. If you have any thoughts jump into your head about anything, decision-making walk away because you're not in the right headspace. In you go, that shouldn't last any longer than five seconds. And then they have the last one, which is um, they call mailbox, which is, which is basically now, as you're walking to the next ball, you just have that little few seconds to think, okay, that one pulled it a little bit to that, to the right, you know, why did I do that? I opened my hips up. I did, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. So exactly what you're saying there now, obviously in golf, they, they have the benefit of that time. And yeah, absolutely. Being able to yeah. walk and, and also the benefit maybe of having the common influence of, of, a, of a caddy. You know, and I think some of the the emotional challenges that come with tennis, in my opinion, come from one, you're out there on your own. It's very gladiatorial. Yeah. Me, me against yeah. you. And it's, you know, because of that, we, uh, the mind tends to race quite fast. And, and secondly, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time in between points. Yeah. And, and, and we are constantly then reacting to different situations on, on, on pretty much every single shot. Um, but it doesn't mean it can't be done, you know. Well, and, and it, it, so
1: like it, it was this idea, I like this idea of, of responding and not reacting. When something yeah. happens, respond yeah. to it. And I always think, you know, if we sort of think about react, it sort of has a more emotion attached to it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, you'll often see players going, oh, that was crap, yeah, and, that, you, know, yeah. you, you know, and that kind of thing. And also a lot of learned answers, I think, you, you know, learned answers when you ask them, but also learned responses or reactions to themselves, you know, like move your feet more. And you know, that's one you hear all the time. And when yeah. you ask players, what could you have done better? I could have moved my feet. And you think, well, there's nothing really to do with your footwork. You know, it's it's just a lot of lot of learned things. But like I said, I think that idea of response rather than reacting is is an interesting I one.
0: I, I like that. I do like that.
1: But um, but I also think you know, in terms of, I always like to see things competitive all the time. I'm I'm not a huge fan of of drills. I've I've made that quite clear a lot of the time that I, I don't like sort of repetitive blocked repetition because it's not how we learn. That's not how we learn to do things. This idea that repetition is what we call the illusion of mastery. That if you do something repeatedly, you just get better at it, but there's no actual evidence behind that. And so I prefer to make whatever you're working on, try and get it into a points basis, try and make it competitive and have a bit of something on it. That's where I think, again, you transfer it to the match core and decisions mean more then.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I mean uh, that's absolutely me, you know. And, and I, I guess one thing, and if we take like a Dan Evans, you take these sort of personalities. That's th- the reward system works for them in terms, yeah. of, you know, play, playing points and everything's competitive. And loser, you know, winner gets five. You quid or pays for lunch or you know, it's kind of that that really dynamic way of working, which I yeah. absolutely, like, I absolutely get, and that works for me. I do just wonder though and it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this that's how i think but maybe not everybody does you know so and and, and that's in a when we're working with individuals you know that would absolutely be my style and i think sometimes and again not to paint the girl and boy brush too much but that that in general that way of working in general works really well with boys i think you know yeah getting, creating a really competitive environment loser got butts up you know and, and you can just see it the intensity just explodes yeah and, and maybe and again it, it would be more differences between boys and girls but it's, it's all individual maybe with some some people that doesn't work as much um i don't know what your take on that is i mean
1: yeah i, th- I think that the sort of male female thing is always an interesting one because purely from my experience you know i've seen I see a lot of stuff of This is what males like. This is what females like. In my experience, it's—I'm not sure. I've sort of seen that there's a huge difference. It's more just that people are different. Yeah. Just every individual is different. I mean, because I've probably worked with similar amount of boys and girls to a decent level, um, and there was no sort of correlation between how all the girls are and how all the boys were. So, like Brandon, who I worked with last time, was was probably quite similar in character to Serena, I came out to to a couple of times with you guys other but but more so than any of the other lads and then like some of the girls I've worked with are completely different from what Serena was like so um yeah I know what you're saying though and I think it's one of those you've just gotta I guess you've just gotta um manipulate the consequences and reward you know it's like if you you wouldn't put for example, you know, it's like if a player hasn't got a load of money, I wouldn't put a financial consequence on it or a reward. I think that then that, that puts them in an awkward position, that kind of thing. And and with girls, I wouldn't do anything that sort of – or not just with girls, but anyone with that type of personality, I wouldn't do anything that embarrasses them. But I think we'll always try and, and, try and bring that in on some level, just because that's – whether we like it or not, that's what tennis is. That's what a tennis match is. So – you've got you know it's like they're gonna have to come across it on a match court and it's like you've got to prepare them for it
0: yeah and i think on on that point i think we people like the um the glamorous training session or the feel-good training session which tennis isn't a feel-good sport you know where you know one of the you know we talk a lot about feel and we talk a lot about rhythm yeah whereas tennis is exactly the opposite to that. Oh, absolutely.
1: Like... I, I always grind my goat when people say that they just want to do something to get a bit of rhythm.
2: Yeah. And
1: it's like, you know, there's no, there's no situation in tennis where you have any rhythm. No. And also, if I'm an opponent, I'm trying to spoil your rhythm as much as I can.
0: Yeah. So
1: I don't get why you'd want some rhythm. What what I, what I want to see is players who can play when they've got no rhythm.
0: You know, that's so, what I'm interested in yeah and, and it's it'scom I think as a coach though it can be quite it can be an uncomfortable practice and, and, and I guess depending on your setup and I think maybe with with the way that where we're set up obviously I, I have an academy where we're kind of calling the shots you're working with one or two players and you're in that position but I think maybe when coaches are working to an hourly rate with lots of different people and maybe they're in competition to bring the players in yeah. At first, at first, maybe that's a difficult sell because yes. you know the the players coming off saying that's just. I feel so uncomfortable and it's just, it's rubbish. And they might have a, a negative association with it. Whereas if they're with, and they've already connected to you as they would, if, they, if they're working with you one-on-one or they've connected to us as an academy and they've committed to a time period. Absolutely. You know, yeah. We're able to, and, and I think those are definitely some of the challenges that, that we have in our sport. And it's, it's a, it's moving into a different direction, but the, the, I call it the hourly rate culture. And, and it's like the hourly rate culture doesn't, in my opinion, develop tennis players, you know? Oh,
1: ab- absolutely. And also, I don't even think it necessarily just comes down to the hourly rate, even in our sort of line of work. if I've sort of had it with, with players and parents that people have a sort of idea in their head of what practice looks like. What's, what does good practice looks like? Yeah. And that's always sort of what, what they think good practice looks like is is a lot of volume in neutral situations. Yeah. Sort of a lot of rallying and they like that idea of, you know, there's nothing that sort of looks better to, to some players or a parent than walking into a three indoor court center and seeing sort of 12 players all drilling cross court balls. It, it looks like what training looks like. And so when you get something that's more sort of real match play based, based on decision-making, some questions being asked, players being asked to challenge themselves cognitively, it yeah. can look like there's not a lot going on. Yeah, and I think that that's when somebody's paying, when somebody's shelling out their money, it might not be what they think tennis looks like.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right. In terms of, in terms of, I'm sure you will have a take on this as well. When we're talking if I take kind of, we're going into younger players now. I, in terms of younger players developing and acquiring skill, and I guess obviously all, all sport is about controlling time and controlling space. Do you? How important do you think it is that that youngsters are doing lots of sports at at a, at a young age?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I can't see any drawback to it, and there's enough examples of players who've done a lot of sport that you just get more get more spatial awareness, more coordination, and I think a lot of the time you get the right amount of competition as well. You know, yeah. you put yourself into positions that you've been in i know from sort of when i'd stopped playing tennis i played football a bit and it definitely helped me with that just the competition side of it um and they you know it just develops them on that front it it sort of gives them a bit of teamwork that you don't get in tennis i guess but yeah no i think absolutely i i, I hate to see players committing to tennis too early
2: yeah
1: and, or, or, or just doing tennis too early and the players who, you know, the thing is, Dan, as well, the players, even even at an older age, look how many tennis players play golf. They love playing golf. They love sort of mixing it in. And I know, you know, some of the British lads, they still chip in with some squash and some golf and that kind of thing. So
0: Look at Ash Barty. Like, absolutely,
1: yeah. That's, and it's no, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that she's the most skillful of all the female players. No. And she's, she's played another sport to an exceptionally high level as well.
0: I actually we we spoke to Sam Qureshi last week, and and he was saying he pretty much took up tennis at twelve or thirteen, and yet he he played like loads and loads and loads of sport, and he played kind of sending receiving skill sports, you know. Yeah. So you know a lot of cricket, a lot of football, a lot of these different sports. He learned how to be a really good competitor. And he said, by the, you know, within weeks of him playing tennis, people couldn't believe he's level. And I think it, it's actually, it's a bit of a misconception that the first time you pick up a racket is the first time you play tennis. If- yeah. If you've done all of these all of these other things. So any, any parents out there with young kids just get them doing, get them doing the lot. It's,
1: it's I think as well though that it's, it's, it's not even just the playing sport. I think it's you know the going watching sport and supporting sport. You notice that a lot of you know especially from our era that you know, would, would we be the same if we hadn't been so much into football. Yeah, and, and that kind of thing, you know, just just watching the football, and not, not just the playing of it, but supporting it. sort all it forces that sort of that winning attitude, that mentality yeah. that I think players need. If if you've never, done, and I've worked with a couple of players who've really had no interest at all in any other sport, and what's always been a a similarity between them is that it's try, it's hard to explain. Sort of trying to explain to them the competitive element of it. Yeah. That uh, and they have not quite got it, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I do a, we do a during uh, this lockdown, we do a quiz on a on a on a Sunday night with, I won't mention names, but with a bunch of tennis current tennis players and ex tennis players. Yeah, and oh my goodness, we were the winners, the winners of one week, and then the quiz masters for the next week, um, and we won, we won a couple of weeks ago. So we were the quiz masters on Sunday night, and that's I pride myself on being a, like a pretty strong quiz master. You know, like I can, yeah. I can yeah, I can hold my ground if I if I run if I run family quizzes if I run different things. There's no messing. You don't mess yeah. with me as a quiz master. Within five minutes on Sunday night, I was like, oh my goodness, like they I'd never. I'd never known I'd even like it. They were coming at me with all sorts. It was like all directions and <laughs> you know, the, the competitiveness, and it, it got me thinking about these poor umpires that do the that do the oh, tournaments yeah. around around the world. You know, with, yeah. with all of the all of our lot just going absolutely crazy at them. It's, uh, I think
1: it's going to be interesting. You know what, what's interesting now, especially over this lockdown, is the popularity of the the Michael Jordan documentary. That mm. y- you know how players who who didn't, you know, the younger guys didn't sort of weren't around when when he was yeah, yeah. when we were, and someone who's so obsessively competitive, sort of having a look at that and within sort of going real behind the scenes in that and seeing how he is, I wonder whether that'll have an effect on on some younger players or not. I don't I know.
0: Hope, I hope so. I hope so. Moving to one more one more topic. Yeah. Um, before, I've got a couple of quick fire questions, which aren't aren't too scary, but just a nice light way to to finish the podcast um twitter is the topic right now obviously we we know each other you know well and go go back a long time um but you definitely have a twitter persona and which 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 i like i i i find it i find it entertaining i find it um Thought-provoking, you know. I think you—you definitely, you know—you get some opinions across, and you're not—you're not scared to, to to speak out um yeah. talk to us. Talk to us about how that's how that's taken place.
1: Um, well, I only you said earlier on that I'm a social media guru. I, I only do Twitter. Act. I have Facebook account. I don't really do Instagram at all. I don't like being in pictures. Um, but Twitter, act, you know, I can I can rant. As well as anybody, I'm a world-class ranter, probably, even if I'm not world-class t- tennis player. Um, but um, yeah, there's just you know, I, I, I obviously I watch a lot of watch a lot of sport and that kind of thing. And there's certain things that that wind me up. Um, I, I like to think that I'm, I'm not blowing my own trumpet. I like to think that I'm I pride myself on my authenticity, and I, I don't like blaggers and I don't like bluffers. And I think there's a few around who I like to call out when um i don't i don't like how they're approaching things
0: yeah. and it, and so a couple of things that from from twitter that i'd like you to clear up yeah but also, uh, maybe you know give context could give context to yeah you know definitely from me from me following you on twitter I've picked up the message that um, you know you don't like when 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 there's people that are really going on about you know you can get you can achieve anything in life if you work hard enough and you know just give your very best and you'll achieve what you want. So so what I guess your your Twitter persona comes across a little bit as is you know you you. Uh, are magnetized a bit more to the skill element and to actually you know the, the skill the talent you believe that, that people have a, a god-given talent what's what's your thoughts on that whole kind of argument and, and
1: so yeah I mean it probably gets a bit blurred in some way so first of all I mean I, I love brilliance I love sort of talent and um, sort of expression of art and that kind of thing whether that being sport or or anything, so I, I'm always attracted to that and, and it, it sort of winds me up a bit when we sort of dismiss it, or some people dismiss it as it, it's something that that loads of people are talented. Then, then not. I've seen in yeah. in my time, I've probably seen in Britain, I've probably seen five or six players who I thought they are brilliant, yeah. they are um, astonishing. I'll, I'll name them if you want, but um,
0: yeah, come
1: but, on, um, let's have them. A- um, Dave Sher.
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah. um it was just brilliant and it breaks my heart that he didn't make millions from the game yeah Um, and he was a mate of mine as well which probably doesn't help um Andy Broads when I saw him as a 14 year old was phenomenal yeah um Evo obviously I said when I saw first saw him when he was 16 and I think me and Gaz Henderson had a conversation as to who was the best player in Britain outside of, I think it was Murray at the time, and we we said at the time it was it was Dan Evans.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. So yeah, and
0: any that's girls probably it any girls. Um. And if not, I wonder why not.
1: Yeah, they would have been, although they're probably still a bit young. Radicanu I think, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I've not seen many players, British players like her. I agree, um, she's
0: dynamic, she's got, she's got a lot going for her. Yeah,
1: um, Katie Swan I saw at a young age who I thought was very good, um, but um, in terms of not it's not i mean, what i'm trying to say there is it's not in terms of um that, I, that they're the only players i thought would get anywhere and any players who i've not mentioned wouldn't there's also been a lot of maybes but i'm saying these are purely on in terms of blowing me away with what they naturally had the the, yeah. the natural talent that they had yeah. um if that makes sense
0: but is that enough
1: okay. no so this is the next stage so that, that's what I, I i tend to get drawn to that but it, it, what winds me up is when pe- when people make out that that is a regular sort of that is a regular um, thing that people have yeah. and hard work is more important. Now if all you've got is talent you'll get nowhere but mm-hmm. equally if all you've got is hard work you'll get nowhere either and, and I think that that's twofold I, I don't like the idea that if you work purely if you work hard enough you'll get where you want to be regardless of your talent Um that's not true and it also has a reflection at the other side of it that is if you didn't get where you didn't want if you didn't get where you wanted to be it was because you didn't work hard enough yeah. now i could have worked as hard as i wanted to be the world's best tennis player and i just wasn't very good at tennis so or i wasn't good enough at tennis and i know because i've worked hard at it so you know, we've seen a lot of players like that so that's that's my position on it it's absolutely not that that talent alone is enough I've seen enough cases to know that it's not it's it's I, I don't like how talent is dismissed as it's not that important and that there's there's plenty of it around there isn't not not a, a, an absolute world-class level there isn't
0: is it not there's not a flip side to that as well though if if in terms of, I guess, the, the, the messaging that we, that we give to our players and we give to our parents. You know, I, if, if, if someone is labelled as talented, which I think we are guilty of as well, that, and I think yeah. we are also saying that, and I think, you know, there's players that get labelled as talented from a pretty young age, so they then, they don't, they value that, they value being known and having that identity as being the talented one, rather than valuing the identity of being the one that's putting the shift in, paying their bill every day, doing what they can every day. you know, And, and, I, and I think I, I hear what you're saying. I think it's hard. It's obviously hard to put that across in however many characters you have on, on the Twitter page to the same level you can put it across on a podcast. But at, this, at the same time, the message that as coaches we're trying to obviously – absolutely yeah
1: and I think that I think that that's, that sort of comes back to what I was just saying though about knowing sport Of, of and, and I had a conversation with a player the other day I'm not I won't reveal who it was but we were talking sort of similarly about it and I said to him that you know you're from the last real generation of that old school competitor who watched a lot of sport and 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 sort of intrinsically understands that the, the the desire element to it that you've got to really want it. And that's what concerns me about younger players that they may, they, they've not sort of had that through watching sport and playing other sport enough Um but yeah, absolutely you don 't want to. but if, if you if you look at the players who broke through top 100 though i probably i, I didn 't actually it's strange because i 'm from Yorkshire i didn 't see a whole lot of Kyle when he was younger, so it 's not that I, I was dismissing him there i just yeah. i didn 't actually see him much when he was younger, um, so um, that maybe if i 'd have seen enough of him i 'd have thought absolutely yeah
0: but Kyle good. I saw Kyle at fourteen and Kyle stood out to me as a top 100 player one absolutely
2: right okay
0: however I was looking not as much from the talent side but more from the from the, the engagement, the, the focused, he was, you know, he was, he was very single-minded in terms of what he was doing yeah. you know, already for me. And this is where I guess I stand on it. I, I definitely agree with, with what you're saying. Yeah. You know, but I also think the messaging is if I take myself or I'll take I'll take Kyle, if I go and I tell the academy about I've seen this 14 year old, it's a much more powerful message for me to be sending to to players and parents that he was fantastic. He was, you know, he was eating well. He was, you know, he was, he was doing, you know, he was, he, one thing that stood out for me about Kyle, I remember it was a, a, an ITF tournament in Portugal. All of us, that we, we went across the, the road and we, we were playing mini golf every day. Yeah. And he would come across and he would get, he would be with us. And obviously, it would be quite—you um, know—banter was flying. You know, typical British lads' banter yeah, yeah. was was flying. And whenever it got to a, a time, he was really good at just removing himself. Okay. And he would, and he would remove himself, and then then you'd see that he was going to his practice fully ready and engaged. Whereas, whereas some of the other boys found it really hard to then pull out of that mindset, and and they, and they almost carried that onto the court. And, yeah. and, and and somebody like a Kyle from that age it really stood out just how disciplined and single minded he was and i guess you're then getting you get you 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 getting a lot more out of what you're doing um, so it's, I, I think
1: uh, you know, I, I think you know if if you look at the players who have come through that it's the players who got both you see like evo and andy you know it's it's like absolute <laughs> world class elite level talents who yeah. both Absolute animal workhorses who are obsessively competitive. Mm-hmm. Kyle the same. Yeah, you know, I, I don't. Yeah, you know, I'm talking about top 100 players. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know Cam Norrie that well at all.
2: Yeah. But even if
1: you, you know, on the girls' side, you look at like I know Heather, although she she may not look that way. she, she loves competing and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you know, she's there. Joe Conter again, obsessively competitive, and you know, aesthetically, it's maybe not the best, but she she can crack the ball. There's some talent there. Yeah,
2: um,
1: yeah. and I think that, that that's the thing. So that that's what I'm saying is that I think it's I don't like the idea that that hard work alone will get you there because I think it one it sets up um, it sets people up for disappointment, which I don't like, and two I don't like the the flip side of it that if you didn't get there you didn't work hard enough and that's as simple as it but that, that's that's going into all sort of levels of, of politics and everything which we we don't want to
2: get into yeah, we don't,
0: um, we don't. And, and I guess just to, to to give my opinion on it I think it's it, the one thing I would say that's not just hard work it's it's everything that goes with that it's smart work it's you know t- taking care of yourself those things that are in your control you know and that's yeah absolutely yeah we want, that little, we want that bit of sprinkle, you know, absolutely, but yeah. actually, there's kind of nothing we can do about that. You know, there's yeah. you know, some, some people have that. So, so I would definitely want to focus and on I, that. I
1: think, as well, on that, Dan, sort of last thing is, is again, a position I'm very sort of certain of in, in how, in my opinions on tennis, is that are players only as good as their bottom level all the time. And, and, you know, we, we've seen players, there's no value in a player being, being able to produce brilliance, but if their bottom level isn't good enough. And that's in any sport. That If you look at Andy's bottom level, I mean, Andy's probably won grand slams playing seven out of ten.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, jo- you look at Djokovic. Djokovic was, Djokovic was terrible in last year's Wimbledon final yeah, yeah. for the most of it. Yeah, and yeah. somehow won a Wimbledon final against the best player that's ever played. Yeah. Whereas you know, like we look at is, is his top level as good as Kyrgios's? If they were both to play the best they could imagine, Curios wins that match. Yeah. But and I think that that's what players, a lot of players don't get, is that you're only as good as your bottom level, and you only get your bottom level up. Talent, talent won't bring you your bottom level. You only get your bottom level with hard work. Yeah, I'm certain of that.
0: Carl, I like it. I could I could talk for hours at some great subjects. We um, just to finish on a bit of a lighter note. Little quick fire, we yeah. Do it. Um, serve return, serve or return.
1: Um, for me, uh, return
0: hard court or clay court, clay indoors or outdoors, outdoors, skill or technique,
1: skill all day long,
0: city or United.
1: <laughs> There's only
0: one club in Manchester okay, so United. City. <laughs> um, training or tournaments? Uh, tournaments. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? ATP Cup. Modern, gone modern. Yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it this year. It was good. Um, Carl, have you been a staff? Great. I, I loved the discussion. Um, I think there's there's lots more we could have even delved into from there. Um, um, I I hope everyone else will enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it
1: Yeah it's great, really enjoyed it thanks for your time
0: A big thank you to Calvin Betton for for the podcast fantastic conversation and I hope very thought provoking for those that listened we have a little announcement Uh, if you didn't already know We're now moving the podcasts to be released every Saturday and Wednesday at 1pm European time. Uh, Hopefully this will help you organise your week and make sure that you're not missing any episodes because we really do have some fantastic guests coming up. Make sure that you are subscribing to the channel. It's it's, it's a free podcast, but if you subscribe to the channel, then you won't miss any, any of the podcasts that are released Please do also keep sharing, liking and getting the fantastic interviews out into the right hands. We continue to try to energise, educate and entertain you in the tennis world. Thank you so much for listening. It's massively valued from myself, Dan Kiernan and my co-host John McGann. We control the coronables. Thank you for listening.